you know, one of the things that drives me certainly is is not coming from any money, right? Like, I never want to be poor again. And I think that that forces me into working like a psycho, right? Just like working constantly. Hey everybody, welcome to the Founder Hour. Today we have with us Nick Ingersoll of Barnana. Nick is the co-founder and CMO of Barnana, and we're very excited to have you here, Nick, and have this awesome conversation with you today. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I guess to kick it off, let's, let's sort of start off, you know, um, your background story and, and how you kind of ended up starting Barnana. Yeah, so um, my background, uh, I grew up in a ru- really rural part of western Nebraska. Um, and, you know, it, it's a place where the closest city is like four hours away. It's not like, ah, I grew up in a small town of 100,000 people outside of Chicago. Um, it was like this really remote kind of area, um, you know, across from a field of sheep. Um, so my jobs growing up were like, Baling hay and branding cattle and shaving sheep, literally shaving sheep, and uh, you know selling the wool and um, and that kind of thing. So um, you know, grew up out there. We didn't have a ton of of money, right? Um, you know, my dad he was uh, a trash man for a while and a garbage man. Um, then he was uh, disabled on the job, and so you know we we sort of relied on his disability check, and so it wasn't like. It wasn't um, the most flourishing <laughs> upbringing mm-hmm. that, that uh, you could ask for. And so, um, you know, I, I, at a very young age, wanted to concoct a plan to kind of escape, get out of there somehow. Um, and so the way that I saw that was, well, get really good grades, learn a bunch of skills, and then hopefully those will parlay into me, you know, amassing some sort of exodus when I'm right. 18 and, <laughs> and able yeah. to get into college. Um, so that's what I ended up doing. Um, I left uh, immediately after graduating high school, mm-hmm. uh, went to California. I saved up a, a bunch of money from, from all the jobs that I was working through the four years. You know, my parents didn't have, you know, a college fund or there was no, you know, there was literally no right. backup plan for me. So I was yeah. like, well, I'm going to go out there and if I fail, then well, it's not going to be a good situation, right? Um, but at the same, but, but in the same breath, it's like I didn't have a ton to lose either. Because if you start with nothing, there's nothing you don't really have anything to lose either. So in a way, it's it's a bit freeing um, in in retrospect. Um, so I went to college in, in California. Uh, I started in Sacramento. Um, immediately knew that I had to somehow pay for college books, right. rent, like all the stuff, and mm-hmm. I'd only save up a thousand dollars. Back in two thousand and six, when I graduated high school, minimum wage in Nebraska was. Five dollars an hour. Wow, it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in California, it was already like eight seventy-five mm-hmm. or nine bucks, mm-hmm. something like that. Um, so I was trying to find jobs. You know, I, in college, I worked like every single random odd job you could imagine. Right, so like dealing black jacket private parties to catering bar mitzvahs to like <laughs> selling cable door to door, like all this crazy shit, just to pay for rent and books and um, you know take out loans and all all that good stuff. So um, I started doing that. Uh, I would work on sort of my entrepreneurial endeavors at nighttime. So I'd go and, you know, dig a ditch during the daytime, go to school. I was going to school full time. Um, and then uh, at nighttime, I'd try and, and hustle and, and, and make something happen. Um, and so, you know, it was several years of, of, of doing that, right? Um, I, I eventually uh, founded a company called Candy Lab, which is a, a tech company. You know, it was kind of parlayed. I, I started doing a lot of, um, you know, fine art painting and, and trying to sell those on eBay and in galleries. And that is a 
super tough business to be in. Like this it was, is in college. Yeah, in college. Um, and, and even in high school, I was doing it too. Um, and so I thought, you know, when I first went to, to college, I was like, you know what? I bet I live in California now. There's a better market there. Like I can sell my paintings easier. There's more mm-hmm. galleries. There's more shows. Mm-hmm. And like... No. I mean, your return on time is just dismal unless you are just next level killing it. And that could take, you know, forever to, to really get that notoriety in, in, in the art world. So um, did that. And then what I realized is that people, instead of wanting, you know, pretty paintings to put up in their office or at their house, they'd prefer to have logos and branding and packaging. Mm-hmm. And that's where the kind of the money was at. So I started doing that freelance, which ended up um, parlaying into founding the company Candy Lab, which we started off as an interactive agency, kind of a boutique, you know, dev design agency. Mm-hmm. Um uh, raised some capital there. We decided to to launch an augmented reality platform that I wrote a patent for um, in 2012. Still an undergrad, um, and then I started working on on Bardana as a side project with um, now my two business partners, Cowway and, and Matt. Um, did that for about a year and a half until we kind of just said, "Fuck it, let's just try and launch this thing." Awesome. Um, yeah, and I guess uh, you know, the rest is history from there. So, Nick, I mean, that's obviously a great kind of summary on you know, how you've kind of got to this point now. But I really kind of want to break it down a little bit and talk about, you know, you, you mentioned that you had a little bit of adversity growing up. You, you know, you could have seen better days and now hopefully, you know, you've gotten to that point. How do you think that that affected your um, growth as a person and then eventually as an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think um, difficulty is is something that, you know, I think difficulty is important for, for a lot of reasons, right? Struggle is important. Sometimes it happens just serendipitously, right? Like your life is just is a tougher upbringing than other people's lives, and that's something you can't control. Right. Um, but then when you're in a comfortable spot, or maybe you were born in a comfortable spot, I think that you should introduce struggle um, to sort of, you know, reinforce. I, I look at it... I look at it kind of as a vaccine for diseases that you may get in the future, right? Like struggle mm-hmm. when, when you when you induce struggle purposefully in your life, it's like you're giving yourself a vaccination for struggle that you'll experience in the future right. organically that you can't avoid, right? Mm-hmm. And so you you can take the controlled struggle now to sort of you know taper off any future struggle. And so that's kind of the way that I look at it. I think that um, you know one of the things that drives me certainly is is not coming from any money, right? Like I never want to be poor again. And I think that that forces me into working like a psycho, right? Just like working constantly. Because it's real, like, you know, when my dad was, I want to say, you know, 42, like, you know, before he passed away, he had to take a job at like a mini mart, you know, just like cashier style shit. And um, it was just kind of sad. Like we just didn't, you know, he still didn't have mm-hmm. money and I was still in college trying to struggle. And like, you know, so the, the year we really started, um, you know, taking Barnett to market. And, um, you know, for me, I think that struggle is super important. And, and growing up, uh, you know, I think that's just something that's just kind of been built into me from the, from the jump. Yeah. Something I always think about is is exposure, just the concept of exposure. And when someone is like growing up and they're exposed to something, that's kind of all they know unless they somehow put themselves in different situations, right? Yeah. Like, um, you know, obviously there are people that have grown up in a, let's say, in a wealthy family or a, an affluent family or something, and they've been exposed to a lot more where, like an example would be get a great education, go to a great college, go to, you know, the Ivy Leagues or something like that, um, and then some aren't exposed as much. So where, where, how would you say growing up, like, you found kind of that um, drive to, like you said, graduate high school, get the heck out, come to L.A. or California, go to school, and, and eventually, you know, uh, start your own company? Yeah, man, I, I really like that I really like that question because I think it frames um, sort of the diversity of experience that people have 
growing up, right? Like, I wasn't even urban adjacent. Like, I couldn't even see a skyscraper to know what that was, mm-hmm. right? Like, it, it's, it's, it's one thing to grow up sort of in a, a place where you can kind of see success happening or you know that there's mm-hmm. startups or whatever or private schools. Like, I had no concept of any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I'm the first person that ever graduated college for my family, right? Um, you know, my dad was a super smart guy. He just didn't go to college. He had to work. You know, I think he had me when he was 22. Um, you know, s- similar story with my mother. And, um, you know, I think my exposure was super limited, super limited. And I think without the internet... You know, I'd probably be stuck there still. A lot of people get stuck there. It's a very isolated spot, yeah. you know, and, and now it's a little bit different because the internet's so pervasive with, with mobile phones, et cetera. But back then it was just, you couldn't really see the light. Um, you know, I, I didn't know what the difference was between an Ivy League school, a state school, and, uh, you know, UCLA or UC yeah. Berkeley or whatever. Yeah. No clue, yeah. right? Like, oh, it's college, right? right? I knew the difference between like college and like a junior college, mm-hmm. but that's pretty much all I knew. And there was no guidance for me in that way. And so, um, you know, I just got straight A's and, and, and killed the, the ACTs and just hope for the best was kind of the strategy. Yeah. Um, cause I didn't really know much else. Um, and what, was, what did you yeah. study in college? Uh, business. Yeah. Business. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. what was kind of your, um, motive for getting a business degree? Like, did you, like, did you feel like you were going to go and work somewhere, you know, try to get the best job you could and make a consistent income, <laughs> a safe kind of, you know, secure, uh, job. Yeah. It's a, so, so for me, that was always kind of, <clears throat> kind of a, a, for sure backup plan. Like I said, you know, I think the worst scenario in my mind is I'm just left out to dry, um, with, with, without the ability to make a decent living and then I'm poor again. And that was, so that was sort of like the stopgap measure, you know, the plug mm-hmm. in the sink that doesn't let the water run right. past a certain point. Um, that's kind of the way that I saw the degree. Um, I've always been very entrepreneurial, right? So, like, I was a kid in sixth grade. You know, gum was disallowed in school. So what I would do is I'd go buy a ton of gum and put it in, like, this little thing in my locker. And I had different prices for each gum and, you know, yeah. this and that. And then depending on which one was the most popular, like, I might raise the price if there's, you know, some scarcity going on. <laughs> like, you know, Supply and demand. Supply and demand, very right? Simple. <laughs> Super simple. And, you know, going back to uh, selling paintings in high school and things. And so it was always my goal to, to do that. I, um, For better or for worse, I'm, I'm sort of, like, anti authority in a lot of ways like I, I am somewhat of a nonconformist. like I really like I could never be in a fraternity for instance like that's just not happening to me yeah it's just not a thing that happens yeah. um, you know so um I think a lot of it was it was kind of that you know maybe maybe I was uh I was probably rebelling against a lot of things um so yeah I think I think the business degree was was definitely sort of a stopgap but I also think that going to college exposes you to like-minded people that also want to do interesting things it also provides you with opportunities to to network um and, and be exposed to things you know you're talking about exposure earlier that that I would just never get exposed to otherwise you know I think it's very difficult you have, you have a lot of um talk about oh should people go to college or should they not go to college and start a business I don't think either one is right. For me, I had to go to college in order to be exposed right. to the people and to everything else, the ecosystem and the environment to do that, right? Mm-hmm. To, to, to start a business. And, and maybe that's not true for everybody. Um, but I do think it's a little bit dangerous, you know, right now with the sexy thing is like, don't go to college, it's wasting. Look, I'm the first one to say when I see the amount of money I'm paying for like this East Asian studies class that I had to take <laughs> my junior year. It's like, what did I, what? you know, it's crazy. Um, 
But I think that this see the ROI of like am I yeah, using it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> none. There's zero ROI. Hey, you class. never know. I mean, Barnana <laughs> expands to East Asia, <laughs> and then you're gonna be saying thank God for that East Asian class that mm -hmm. I took because now I know I, um, you probably don't remember half the things. Well, I know about Siddhartha uh, and you know all that. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. Bhagavad Gita, yeah, exactly, etc. Exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. So Nick, so you're now in this new environment. You you know you have this entrepreneurial kind of drive. You have the passion. You know that you're going to be doing something. You don't really know what. And I totally agree with you that school and, you know, college is this place that, sure, you're getting this education and, you know, you're going to class. But more so, you are exposed and you meet some awesome people, like-minded people, people that can, and on the other end of the scale, people that completely disagree with you and have a different view of business or life or whatever. But that also kind of helps you out in determining what you want to do. So... Tell us a little bit about, you know, how you met one of your co-founders or, you know, both of your co-founders and how you guys kind of began this whole process while you were in college. Yeah, so um, with Barnana, I actually, it's, it's funny, you know, these, these two questions kind of... Um, tie in really well together. So, um, so I was in college and there was an American Marketing Association mixer. And so I would, you know, my whole goal was like, oh, I'm going to, even though I didn't have any time to, to spend, right? Mm -hmm. Because it was like, work a full-time job, go to school full-time, and then work on side projects, you know, at nighttime. Well, when I don't have time, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And so I had no social life, uh, short story. Um, but in doing so, you know, I'd go to like the American Marketing Association Mixer, and that's how I met um, my business partner, Catway, right? Matt and I um, both went to SDSU together, um, so we met that way, and um, you know, it, it, it was that, right? It was being in a certain place at a certain time with a curated amount of people, um, and that's essentially how we initially met, yeah. Um, so at the time, you know, I, I started running Candy Lab. Um, Catway was running a bicycle manufacturing company. Uh, Matt was working as a VP of finance for another startup in La Jolla. Um, and so I worked on Barnana as a side project again for a year and a half while I started a couple of e-com businesses that were doing okay, like, you know, $10,000, $20,000 top-line revenue businesses, like very, you know, mm -hmm. maybe a 35% profit margin. It's like not mm -hmm. great businesses, but but something, right, right. To, to help. Um, you know, I was like, we're going to Subway making sandwiches during the daytime and at nighttime. I'm like selling whatever I can do, you know, off of AliExpress yeah. on a random uh, website right. on Shopify. Um, you know, and, and so we did that for a while and then, um, you know, about a year and a half later, we, we said, uh, you know, let's let's do this. Um, I was kind of frustrated with um, the way things were going at Candy Lab. There was a couple couple of notable um, happenings that really forced my hand in, in, in leaving. And then, you know, um, I think that the, the three of us, um, the timing all just worked out really well. Um, and we all, we all jumped off the cliff. Talk know. to us about Candy Lab. I know you mentioned that there was some VR uh, that went along with that. Um, was that something you even knew about or it was just, you know, you were interested in it and you began and then kind of figured it out? Yeah, so so we were really early on with AR. Yeah. like AR, excuse me. Yeah, sorry. yeah, which, which oh yeah, the future of AR and VR, I think yeah. will merge and then everybody right. else call it VR because right. it's easier to pronounce than augmented reality. Right. <laughs> it's like a very long, right. weird word. Right, right, right. But, you know, for people who don't know, AR, augmented reality, is where you're essentially placing, uh, you're superimposing digital items in, uh, onto a real world mm -hmm. experience. So, you know, put your phone up and there's a floating, you know, star in the sky, but you're looking at the actual sky. Something Which like Snapchat has been doing now a little bit with some Precisely. of those things. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so this is, you know, 2010, 11? Like, 
way premature. No one, yeah. even still, people don't know what that is. Just right. tell you, say Pokemon Go, and be like, oh, I know what that is. Um, and so we started off as sort of the boutique interactive agency. So um, I would do a lot of design and, and development work for mostly web, some you know mobile apps and things like that. Um, and then that's sort of we we sort of kind of you know, one of these late night you know working on projects sort of scenarios where we said, well, why can't we make some sort of like you know Mario Kart meets you know. Pac-Man, real world, mm-hmm. scavenger hunt kind of thing, um, and that's essentially how it how it got born. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so we raised a little bit of money and, and, and did that for a while. And Candy Lab's still um, going on. Uh, we, they've essentially pivoted now um, to being sort of a white label AR um, platform for businesses to create a Pokemon Go like experience. So um, that's what they're up to now. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so this concept of timing, right? Like, like in that in that example of like you know you being a little bit too early to the market. Um, <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? Like, how do you, how do how does one kind of figure out if the, it's the right time to start a business or start you know create a product or or service? Well, dude, I'll tell you this: <clears throat> if uh, if I only knew that all I had to do was put a goddamn Pikachu on the app <laughs> to make it a success, dude, you know. Um, the only missing piece. timing, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, that's that's timing. Yeah, yeah. It's it's somewhat uh, serendipitous. It's somewhat um, you know analyzing the market and blah blah blah, doing your SWOT analysis, etc. Um, but it's it's a conglomeration of all those things. I think you know a, a lot of people use timing. I think a lot of people that probably listen to this podcast will be thinking, you know, you're thinking of business or wanting to do a business. Oh, I don't know. What should I do? Should I wait? Should I do it now? Is the time right? Is the economy going to crash? Who's going to get elected? <laughs> and really, it's like, just fucking do it because you're not really going to know if the timing is right until the timing was right. And then you're looking back like, oh, right. shit, the timing was right. Now I'm late. Right. And that's kind of how that story plays out. Right. Um, you know, so the short answer is you can look at as many indicators as you possibly can and, and try and make the best informed decision um, possible. But at the end of the day, um, you know, some, sometimes you're, you know, a year early to a trend that, that blows up and there you are. You know, it's interesting you say that because, you know, we always say, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, And in this case, you know, it's actually true because how do I know that I was right? Whether the concept was right, whether the time was right, whether I was the right person to do it, right? I don't know that until I actually do it and it either succeeds or it fails. And at that point, you know, if it's succeeding, then, you know, you kind of figure out the next steps. And if it's failing, you know, either you kind of change up your game plan a little bit or you just say, you know what, it didn't work out. But then again, you know, now we move on to the next thing, which is kind of what you did here with, you know, Barnana and, you know, with with leaving Candy Lab. So t- uh, discuss with us a little bit about that experience of leaving something that you had already you know, started, uh, you know, how that felt as, you know, a founder at that point. But then, how it kind of felt transitioning into a new venture? Yeah, it was um, it was a little strange. So, so there's even one step before Candy Lab, which I was running uh, essentially a brick and mortar, um, you know, I call it supplement um, store. Right. And um, you know, I had to leave my business partners there to do Candy Lab, and then leave my business partners there to do Barnana. Um, and I think it's I think it's just not being romantic about what you're doing and, and the ideas that you have, you know, and um, being like being really real with yourself, right? Like, look in the mirror and like. Is this shit working out? Like, does it have long term viability? Are my partners in this? Like, really in this? Are they mentally stable enough to be in this? Right? Like, am I gonna be happy? What's the light at the end of the tunnel? What's our goal here? I think sometimes people get scared to ask those questions. Sometimes, right? Yeah. Um, and and for me, that was kind of what I've been doing for a long time. Right? It's just like you, you just have to do it, even if it's painful or it makes you feel sad or mad or unsure or worried or whatever. Um, 
You know, it, it's tough, right? Like, short answer is fucking difficult, dude. Like, you're dealing with people. And right. when you're dealing with people, you're dealing with their emotional baggage. You're dealing with their, you know, logic. That's great logic, bullshit logic, combination of all of them in between, right? You're just, like, running into circular reference <laughs> arguments right. about this and that. Um, for me, it was very clear when I needed to leave. It was um, the right decision to, to do it at the time. Um, you know, it's... it's uh, it's a process. I think a lot of people are just scared to to do things in general, and and especially big things like that, and especially kind of offend people or 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 kind of make them sad or angry or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, if if you're not living your own life, how can you help anybody live theirs, right? right. And so if you're too worried about what everybody else is thinking, doing, feeling, um, you know, you won't do anything, and, and by consequence, your life and their lives are going to be worse. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is something, a concept that I've, I've read, like Tim Ferriss writes about it a lot, is um, kind of knowing the rules of the game and knowing kind of what the end game is. And if, if it doesn't look like appealing to you, mm-hmm. you know, you might want to think of something different and mm-hmm. do something else that you feel like much more passionate about or whatever. So, okay, so in this case, you know, Candy Lab, that was kind of the situation for you. What did you see? in the banana market. Like, what did you see with Parnana and, like, what kind of got you, you to take the... saw a lot of potassium, the, I'll tell you that. Yeah, that's true. What, what, what kind of kind of caused you to take the leap into, you know, kind of leap of faith into this business? So, um, you know, oftentimes people ask me, like, hey, like, I mean, what do you do? I usually tell them that I slang bananas for cash because it's, uh, it's just so ridiculous. I was like... Oh, come on. Like, what do you really do, you know? Um, so I, I sling bananas for a living is what I do. Um, how I came to do that. Um, so, you know, uh, so Catway, my business partner, he grew up in Brazil. Um, and there's a lot of sort of banana-based products down there, right? So tons of dehydrated bananas. A lot of them are, you know, partially dehydrated. They're super sticky. They're pretty ugly. They're wrapped up in cellophane and sold on street carts. Um, but they taste delicious. They look weird. Um, and so I tried these things. Like this is kind of crazy. And you tried this in Brazil? I tried this in the U.S. Cali brought some for Brazil. Got you. Yeah. And and you know the, the crazy part was like, how is this product down here? There's so many different derivations of this mm-hmm. product down there, and there are. Literally none in the United States. Mm. And this is the time where Vita Coco and Zico coconut water is coming to the U.S., right? So coconut water has been around in Brazil forever, and no one had just made it sexy and, you know, put Rihanna and Jessica Alba as the spokesperson or whatever, right? Well, I'd buy it. Right? Yeah, like, same. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. you know, uh, and, and Mark Rampola is, is one of our investors, the founder of Zico, and, you know, uh, we didn't know him back then, but you know, we see Zico coming to the market and doing really well. We see Samazon taking acai from, from um, Brazil and, and doing really well. So we're like, why have bananas just not made the jump? Because Acai is like this crazy thing where it's, it's, most people can't even pronounce this it. There's an educational aspect. Huge. Yeah. And it's still not, and they've been around for... Remember Monavi? Yeah. yeah. The, you know, the yeah. multi-level kind of market. The, yeah. The, uh, what's it called? The little, the triangle thing that they had? Yeah. The pyramid? Yeah. The pyramid. Yeah. Pyramid, yeah. pyramid yeah. market. Uh, yeah. So that, yeah, it's a huge educational yeah, aspect. Yeah, huge educational aspect. And we saw bananas and everybody knew what bananas were. So bananas are the number one selling fruit in the U.S. <laughs> more than apples and oranges combined. Um, you know, and, and... You know, Americans eat tons and tons of bananas. Right. It was kind of a no-brainer. And so we saw, um, you know, people like Zico branding a fruit, right? So they're a coconut water company. We saw um, saw, saw Palm Wonderful coming um, uh, into the market, and they're branding the pomegranate. Another mm-hmm. random esoteric fruit. It's like, yeah. what the, who's eating pomegranates? Yeah. 
on a regular basis mm-hmm. in the morning. Like, you're not doing it because they're really hard to consume. Um, so our, our general concept was we want to do for the banana what Palm Wonderful did for the pomegranate um, and really brand the fruit and create a brand, brand around bananas. Even when you look at apples, right? You have fresh apples, but then look at all the derivative products of apples. Apple sauce, apple juice, apple puree, apple cider, Caramel apple, apple this, apple that. Apple music. Apple whatever, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, apple computer. Oh, that's a different thing. You can't yeah. crunch on that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But, but yeah, and with bananas, they're, they're was nothing uh, until we came along. Right. Yeah. So how how did you come up with Barnana? So we see the banana as nature's original energy bar. Okay. So it, it off the tree, it already comes in a package, right? It's all packaged up. It's already in the shape of a bar. It already has a lot of the nutrients that you would look for in a bar, but the problem is the packaging is shitty and goes bad in like four days on your yeah. counter and then Changes fruit flies show up and then it's just, you know, chaos. Yeah. Um, so, so that was kind of the idea, yeah. Nice. Barnana, that's pretty simple. Yeah. I mean, I mean you know, that's, that's we always talk about it with these founders, like the, the naming process of it because it, it, it is difficult sometimes, you know, you want it to make sense, you know, obviously this makes sense, but sometimes you're just like, I don't even know what they're selling. You yeah. know, in this case, you kind of do, you know, the packaging is right next to me. It's obviously beautiful and, you know, our listeners will definitely see it once we, you know, put that's it out there. That's something I want to talk about too is like, you know, the whole branding of, of this company because it's like, you know, like branding bananas, it's just insane. <laughs> like, I, you know, your website is, is beautiful. Your, you know, packaging, I was, I was telling you before, is kind of looks like you're taking a website and putting it on a on a, on a a little, you know, bag. Like, how, what kind of went into that branding? Yeah, so um, so I do all of our branding and design. Um, it's something that we've never outsourced from the very beginning. Um, and so, you know, uh, design for me is something that I'm super passionate about and um, and love doing. And so, um, you know, I, I've, I've branded and designed a, a lot of different things, um, from Barnana to things that when I was doing freelance to, you know, things I was doing uh, in my time with Candy Lab. Um, so so it's been, you know, from, from doing sort of fine art painting all the way through doing more logo design, packaging design, uh, website design, that kind of thing. Um, it, it's just something that, that I love to do. Yeah, you know, I'm an artist at heart. I always have been uh, since, since a young age. You know, my, my parents, when we were kids, my brother and I, we weren't, you know, we never had like a video game console, like oh, the Xbox, we'd have to go to our friend's house or something, right, we just didn't have the money to afford one, um, so so what my parents did is they would just hand us this giant box full of crayons and colored pencils and stuff like that, and we would, and just paper, and we just draw, and for whatever reason, as kids, we just loved to do it, um, so I think it just kind of stuck, yeah, it's been, it's been an enduring personality trait, I guess. <laughs> so how does one come up with, uh, you know, whether it's bananas or something else, like, what is your kind of approach to branding? So... It's it, it's obviously very multifaceted, right? I think you have to have something that aesthetically appeals to people in general mm-hmm. first, right? Like sometimes, especially in the food space, you'll see this, right? So you'll have, you'll have products and then you'll have brands, yeah. right? Like Zico is a brand, but then you'll have, I won't, you know, disparage any of these fine mm-hmm. companies' names, but then you'll have some other Coconut Water X... That's just like a clearly a product, right? Like right. the package kind of looks like shit, and it's just kind of like, I guess this is safe. I'm not sure. Like it seems to be sealed. <laughs> you know, you ever run into one of those? Um, you know, and so I, I think that you have to kind of figure out what you're doing, right? Like you, you really have to have some sort of core within whatever you're doing. Otherwise, you're just going to be lost. And then you're going to run into if you don't have this sort of core philosophy, that this this broader vision of what you want the brand to communicate and look like. You want you want to think about the feeling people are going to get when they look at anything about your brand. The feeling, like that non-quantitative, completely qualitative, subjective feeling someone just 
gets when they look at a product. That's but the how, thing you have to start with. How you know? how do you how do you you know you use the word subjective, but how do you yeah. make something like how do you make a feeling like that objective? Like you know yeah. you know it's a you know you said generally feel good. You know like yeah. and I and I know where you're coming from, but yeah. you know how, how do you know that. I'm going to like this product or how am I going to like this brand or like that mm-hmm. a lot of people are going to see this product on a shelf and say, Oh, that, that's nice. You know, like what, what's the measure for that? Yeah. So, so this, I run into this question uh, a lot, right? A lot of people. Um, so it, it's interesting with art in general, whether it's, you know, art on a package or a website or it's a painting in your house, it's mm-hmm. a Picasso or a Dolly or whatever. Right. Uh, yeah. Some people may love it. Some people may hate it. Of and course. you will always have both. Of course you will always have, Two, you know, one design up here that, you know, I've won plenty of awards for design, etc. There'll be someone that despises it for whatever reason. They just don't like, you know, the color orange or some shit. I don't know. Um, so you're always going to have that. Um, oftentimes what you run into, especially when you're talking about um, design and, and branding, you run into people that are not creatives that have never, like, painted anything, made a logo, a package, anything in their lives, but they have an opinion on the packaging and what looks good, what doesn't look good. Well, I'm a consumer. I know. Uh, I know what I like. You know, uh, <laughs> my opinion matters too. And the problem is, like, if I'm trying to learn how to, you know, fix a broken arm, I'm going to go to an orthopedic surgeon that knows how to fix arms. Mm-hmm. If I'm going to go learn how to, you know, use QuickBooks. I'm going to ask an accountant because they know what they're doing. Um, but, but with thi- with visual things, and and I guess you could even include music in this um, to, to some extent. Everybody kind of feels like they know what looks good, right? Like no one when they get, when people get dre- fashion too, right? Like when someone gets dressed in the morning, mm-hmm. they don't f- put their clothes on, look in the mirror, and be like God, I look like shit today. Let's go get you know. <laughs> but meanwhile, like their belt doesn't match their shoes. Right, right, They're wearing right. bright orange with like right. you know some stripes vertical, some horizontal. Like they just look like a mess. But they don't know that. Um, and so it's 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 creating something for the people that don't know those things, mm-hmm. right? Like you do have to have sort of a, a design eye um, because a lot of people don't, um, you know. And I think that when you're thinking about brands, you want to create something that's that's everlasting, right? Like there's a reason why you wear a Patagonia hat, right? There's a reason why you wear a, a Nike T-shirt instead of like a you know a Crikey T-shirt because right. like Crikey looks like shit and Nike is awesome because it's got the nice little simple swoosh mm-hmm. and they've really you know there's a reason that people buy Apple products. And, yeah, it's the software and it's this and that, right? But there's also sort of this prestige. There's, there's an aura around right. the brand and the simplicity into which they design every teeny piece of the brand experience. And so when you're getting deep down into it. You kind of want every single touch point to match up, right? Mm-hmm. Like when you open an Apple product, it's like, oh, open this little thing. Everything is very well thought out. Tab, tab, boom. It's they've curated that entire brand experience, and that's sort of the feeling that they're going after. Absolutely. Yeah. So, kind of, let's talk about um, strategy. I think that's a great segue into um, kind of a, you know how you strategically take a concept like a banana, or like whether it's a software or something that's like your core. Yeah. And build on top of it. Like you have different types of snacks. You have your like brittles. You have your um, bites, and you have more coming. Um, how do you kind of look at that? Yeah. So it's actually so right now I'm going through a bit of a um, uh, redesign process. So I, I I'm constantly iterating on our designs. Um, and so you can actually, of course, if you're listening to the podcast, you can't see this, but um, <laughs> behind them there is a, a board with all of my musings of you know mm-hmm. uh, of, of rebrand and, and, and things like that. Um, there's also a, a product on there that I can't um, tell you what it is yet, but you'll find out in uh, late January. Um, and you'll see a bit of a, a branding update from us. You know, it's, it's, it is difficult when you start with one product and then two then four, and then a different product line, and then you have three product lines, and then five. 
And how do you differentiate those products, yet still keep the brand consistent throughout? So when people see Barnana over here, they see Barnana over there, even if it's in a different part of the store. Um, it's, a, it's a big challenge. It, it really is. Um, and I guess to, to put one caveat onto what I was saying earlier, it's <laughs> yes, um, design is it's a skill, right? It's a thing that, that's very hard to quantitatively measure. However, if you put something out and nobody buys it, it's a bad design. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you've ever seen somebody who's like, yeah, man, I'm an artist. You know, I just like live in Venice and like, yeah, it's like no wear shoes and stuff and like just hang out, you know, and then like, I'm gonna make a bunch of art and then you walk in and you're like, dude, that is like literally a brown piece of paper. <laughs> like, there's nothing on it. It's like, no, man, it's the we, feeling. We, we call that garbaggio. Yeah. It's like garbaggio. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, you know, so, so that's an important note too, right? Like, if, if, if you do have sort of this broader vision and, and, and scope and idea and things and it has not been validated by the market, then you've failed at what, at what you're mm -hmm. trying to mm -hmm. achieve. Um, and, and so that's a, a super important point, whether it's introducing, you know, new product lines or new um, products themselves or anything so like that. So would you that. say it's a matter of just testing? Like you kind of, you, you really don't know. A lot. I mean, I'm seeing yeah. there's, there's a certain level of, you know, whether it's research or just kind of identifying trends and things that goes into it. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's a certain level of just like, you know, you don't know until you know. You don't know till you know for sure. I think testing is probably not the best for creative. And I know this is a very hotly contested issue, right? I think that a panel of experts is, is the best way to, to really get actionable, important feedback, right? Like if I'm talking about raising money, I want to talk to people who have raised money or who invest or whatever. Even though other people may have opinions about it, they may not have the most informed opinions that you need to make the best decision there. And if you left it open to the public, the general public also doesn't know that much about fundraising, and so their opinions are going to just be worthless. Yeah. Like, it's not... They don't have the, the, the pool of knowledge they need to make an informed decision about what you're looking for. Um, and I think the same thing applies for creative. Um, so more so, I was, I was kind of referring yeah. to like the actual product, like, you know, mm -hmm. you releasing different types of banana-type products. Um, right. how, would, how do you strategize that yeah so the innovation um so so for us it, it's <laughs> we have a very uh, large top of the funnel right it's like tons of <laughs> tons of ideas and innovation. Oh, you yeah, know exactly. you have uh, with any entrepreneur you have sort right. of like shiny object syndrome going on mm -hmm. to some extent like oh dude but what if we did this you right. know <laughs> what if we introduced banana i don't know uh, refrigerators and you know <laughs> what if we took it beyond food man you know he's like you're making all these crazy ideas. Yeah. Um, it's not a bad idea, though, the banana fridge. That's what I'm saying. A big like old, it. dude, yeah. fridge. That, Think like, about it. In a banana shape. This, yeah. yeah. You put bananas in there. Exactly. And be yeah, awesome. And, yeah. And, and we can discuss that later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think, um, you know, so, so the problem is sort of taking all of those ideas and then dithering down which ones make the most sense. Um, and when you're at scale, you know, it's different, a little bit different when you're starting. I think you want to focus when you're starting, right? You really want to focus. I think... A lot of people make mistakes when they want to launch a whole bunch of shit at, at one time, and you don't have either the personnel or the supply chain or the marketing team or the brand awareness or whatever that is to really execute on all those disparate products you're trying to launch at one time. Um, of course, unle unless you've, you've you know, raised $30 million and you've done it 10 times and you have a team of 100 people, it's a little bit of a different scenario. Yeah. But generally speaking, most people that are trying to start really want to start with a lot of things instead of looking at it as, okay, what's my minimum viable product? You know, mm -hmm. Step one stage two, stage three, stage four, right? And think about it that way. Um, 
you know, so it's, it's a little bit different in that context. I think you really need to focus. Now, when you're at scale, like we are now, and we're, we're selling a lot of, of products, the innovation pipeline is a whole different thing, right? Because now you have real constraints on operations, on supply, on your sales team, right? On, on all these different things, your core competencies um, as, as, as a brand and a company. You know, for us to introduce something like a beverage, for instance, even though food and beverage are, are very close to each other, mm-hmm. beverage is just a different world. Yeah. Right. You know, supplements, different world. Right? You're going to have to have different sets of, of, of skills within your employees to really execute on those things um, and execute on them well. Um, even though, you know, it, it happenstance, you would see, oh, there's a bag of bananas and there's like a banana milk or whatever, right? Like, ah, oh, it's pretty much the same thing. But um, that just that is so vastly different. You really have to sort of think through that first. And then, of course, you know, validate it. Uh, by the market, right? Like what, what sort of um, products sort of fit the current trends, right? Like right now, you're probably not going to introduce like a high fructose corn syrup, mm-hmm. 100% artificial flavor, 100% artificial color, like, <laughs> blah, you know, <laughs> probably not the best. Yeah. But in like 1982 or whatever, wasn't around back then, granted, so I'm a little bit speaking out of my ass, but I'm assume in the 80s, it's like, ah, yeah, you could launch that. No one's going to think twice because there really wasn't the awareness there. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Um, yeah. that's kind of how I tend to look at it now. Nick, earlier you brought up two of my favorite concepts, funding and supply chain. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I mean, I wasn't kidding, but... I want to talk about how, so you guys decide, you try this banana, this, you know, dehydrated banana from Brazil. Um, you guys are sitting around, I assume, or standing around. I don't know what you guys are doing, but you guys finally squatting. decide. <laughs> squatting. even nicer. <laughs> and so you t- decide to take this next step and start this company. You know, what did you do right after that? So, you know, when, when we were uh, sort of working on this uh, for that year and a half time period before we actually launched the brand... I was doing a lot of design. We're, we're trying to source bananas, um, right? And, and it's a very difficult thing. Um, you know, so we found farming partners in in Latin America that, um, that that we could get bananas from. What we ended up discovering, you know, at the very beginning, we're like, okay, we'll get bananas from Brazil. But the problem is Brazil makes tons of bananas, but they also eat all the bananas they make. So I'm like, oh, that's probably not a fit. And so we're looking at, you know, what percentage of, of organic bananas are exported from this country, that country, and the other one. And so we landed on a few that, that tend to make sense from an export perspective, right? Like the, the uh, economy there, the domestic economy wasn't consuming all of the bananas. And so there's some bananas that we could get there potentially. Um, so that was the idea initially. And then what we found out is that up to 20% of all the bananas that are produced go to waste before they ever, ever even reach um, distribution or export. Um, and so, you know, you go down there and it's like, okay, here's a pile of bananas that look normal to us because they're still green, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, those will be good to eat in like two days or right. something like that. But they're either too big, they're too small, they have a bump or a bruise or a scratch or a something um, where they just can't sell them. They can't export them. Um, in a place where Ecuador, uh, a place like Ecuador where, you know, call it 80% of all organic bananas are, are exported, you just have a massive amount of bananas that are just being used as compost. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I will add is, insane because, you know, as you know, there's worldwide food shortage. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, when you look past the farm level, over half of all the food that's created um, goes to waste either through farming, distribution, or, or retail or consumer. Um, you know, and, and, and so that kind of got our, our minds turning, like, what's going on here? And, you know, from the very beginning, we wanted to start a food company that, that sustainability was first, right? We're a B corporation. The only products that we produce are organic, always. Um, we just think that's the right thing to do. And that's, you know, growing up in sort of a, a farming region for me, it was really important. I know my other two business partners, um, it's important for them as well. And um, that kind of renewed our, our focus on supply chain and said, well, what if we could eliminate food waste at banana farms, organic banana farms in Latin America? Um, 
wouldn't that be awesome, right? So now you're you're essentially giving those farmers money that they otherwise wouldn't receive, um, and then also addressing um, sort of this whole food waste problem. Um, and so that's kind of how we how we discovered it. Yeah, awesome. So you guys are finally now sourcing the bananas and starting the company. At what point do you start raising cap, like outside capital from you know whether it's you know venture capitalists or other private investors, and how how was that process like for you guys? Yeah, so this is a uh, um, an interesting one. So for me, you know, this is me in my early twenties. And, you know, we're thinking about raising capital and everyone's talking about friends and family. Like, oh, friends and family. Raising the friends and family? Friends and family. Friends and family. I'm like, what the fuck is friends and family? Like, my friends and family are poor as shit. You mean, wait, your friends and family have money to, like, give you? To like maybe not succeed at like a business idea or something like that. It was just it was sort of like a mind blower for me when when I was young. I was just like, okay, friends and family, got it. Okay, <laughs> you know, it was one of those exposure things, right? I just wasn't exposed yeah, yeah, to that, totally. and it's like, oh, okay, I guess that's a thing. Um, so clearly, I didn't have any of that. Um, so what we ended up doing is we uh, convinced this this co-manufacturer in, in uh, Northern California to produce a small, like, 25-pound thing of chocolate-covered bananas. Um, and we had bought some um, raw bananas uh, from, from South America um, that were dehydrated. And we're like, okay, so the brand looks legit, right? Like, we got the packaging down, the booth down. So let's, let's just go to a show and see what happens. And so we went to the largest natural foods um, show in, in the world called Expo West in Anaheim. Yeah, it's great. It yeah. was there this past year. It's crazy, right? Now well, it's... It's insane. Yeah, it's nuts. Dude, insane now. It's bananas. It's bananas. Yeah, yeah, it's bananas. It's Love that song. Anyways. Yeah, so we decided to go there and just see what happened. So, you know, we have the booth. We look legit. Yeah, went to FedEx, printed off a bunch of um, labels, you know, of this mm-hmm. packaging, and stuck mm-hmm. them on some Amazon pouches, and like put the product in there, and put it in a glass case because we didn't have very many, um, so nobody could just take them. Um, we had a little bit for sampling, um, and then you know we have retailers coming by and brokers and things, and Whole Foods came by, and Wegmans came by, um, which is a big retailer on uh, the East yeah. Coast, and they both wanted to carry the product. You know, they come, they want to carry the product. Wow. Like, hey, can you uh, you know deliver uh, us some product in the fall? Uh, this is in March. And we're like, uh, yeah, 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 nah, yeah, so obviously. They came to you. Well, yeah, they go by the booth, you yeah, know. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. They try wow. the product and they really like it. And you like, hear all these Whole Foods stories, but that's amazing. Yeah, and they want to bring it in. Yeah. So we're like, well, I guess we got to, like, figure that shit out real quick. You know? And so, yeah. to answer your question, like, it made it a lot easier for us to raise capital after that. Right. Um, and so we raised a, a small round of capital at the very beginning um, with 100% warrant coverage to those investors to reinvest at the previous valuation to sort of reward them for um, taking... Believing in you. Yeah, taking really, really risk. Um, but when you have a PO pending from Whole Foods and Wegmans, it's a little bit easier to, to raise right. capital in that right. way. Um, so that's how we did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. So you guys now start, and you guys have launched into several products. What was what was it like, you know, growing the team, growing the number of products that you guys were carrying, and now at the stage you're at? Yeah, so it's uh, it's crazy, right? Like the the scaling question: How do you scale? What do you scale? Right. For me, I was super lucky to have two co-founders with me, right? Like Cowie, Matt, myself. The reason it's so important is that you're all in, like all all in. And so you have, and we weren't paying ourselves or anything like that. I'm, you know, defaulting on student loans at this point. Like, not the best financial, personal financial scenario of all time, um, you know. But but that sort of like ardent belief in, you know, we're just going to make this shit happen. Kind of at least kept me going. Yeah. The good thing about having three co-founders is that you have you have work to spread out. 
amongst the three of you, right? And, and I think it's also very important that they have different skill sets, mm-hmm. completely different skill sets, and we do, completely different skill sets. Um, because if you don't, then you end up stepping on people's toes, mm-hmm. and it gets a little messy, and you're like, I want to do this, well, I want to do this too. And you get this whole you know, back and forth terrible scenario that you often right. hear about. Um, and so we were lucky in that way. Um, you know, it, it quickly became um, sort of necessary to bring on somebody in operations to handle supply, um, uh, somebody to handle sales, right? And we started layering those things in. Some things you can hire internally for. Sometimes you can um, hire externally. Um, you know, we, we had a great broker on board very early on. So in the food space, one thing that's commonplace is you need a brokerage of some kind. And, and, and oftentimes, at scale, you need several different brokers because they... To deal with the distributors and whatnot? Yeah, just different types of accounts, right? Like you have a broker for Costco, and then you have a broker right. for the natural channel, and then the grocery right. channel, and then the right. convenience and all this stuff. Um, so we have tons of brokers now that we work with. Um, but one of the brokers very early on called Presence Sales and Marketing, they're one of the biggest ones in the natural foods industry. They made a cash investment in the business in our first round of capital. Um, because they believed in the product and, and, and everything, kind of like Whole Foods and Wegmans did. Um, and I don't know, maybe we're just gets, you know, bullshitters, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Turned to, for them, turns out that uh, they made the right choice, right? right. But um, at the time, it's a big risk. Um, and so, you know, layering on those, those brokerage teams were super important because they have the relationships, they know the stores, they can give you guidance, right? Um, for a relatively low cost, you're not sort of committing to an employee where you're, you know, they're relying on you for their livelihood. Um, but then operations is something that you can't outsource, right? You need somebody in charge of operations, logistics, that sort of thing. Marketing, you can outsource to some extent with agencies and contractors. Um, you know, so I think it's, what is, I, I, my general thesis on growing a brand from Zilch is outsource things that you can while you can until you need to insource them because insourcing things takes a long time. It's expensive. It's, it's individual people that are relying on you and you only mm-hmm. for their source of income. And it's much easier to be like, ah, oh, we're not going to work with this broker anymore because you know what? They have 50 other brands and they're right. going to be just fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, going into 2018, uh, you know, I know you, you're still rolling out new products. Like what is kind of the next five years look like for, for Bernana? Well, you know, you never, you never know till you know, I guess yeah. I think you said that earlier. Um, yeah, you know, for us, we, we've built the business into an eight figure business. Um, you know, we've raised several rounds of capital from, from a lot of awesome people. Um, you know, we have a, a great team internally. Um, our, our capital partners are also really good people. Uh, I couldn't emphasize that enough when you're going to raise capital, like make sure you realize that your idea and what you have in the execution of that idea is the gold, right? Like the gold's not actually the gold. The gold is you, your idea, your enthusiasm about that and your, and your ability to execute on that idea. Money is just a commodity. It's everywhere, right? Like it's, it's not that hard to come by really if you're exposed to the right shit, mm-hmm. right? Um, so for us, you know, it's, it's ruthlessly focusing on building the brand, right? I mean, that's the, a lot of people in the food space, they think they're in the food space, they think they're in the beverage space, but really they're in the marketing and branding space. That's what right. they're actually in, right? Especially these days with like social media and what you know, whatnot. It's like, and it's if like you're not on there, the sun has been done. So like, yeah. what, what is going to differentiate you is is really your brand. Totally, right? right. Yeah. We need to talk about something. Uh, it's the Forbes list that you were on recently, <laughs> yeah. thirty under thirty. So talk to us about how that experience kind of you know has helped you. I guess. I mean, I don't think it's hurt you in any way. But you know. First of all, how did you get picked to be you know, on 30 Under 30 list? And, um, you know, again, what were kind of the positive repercussions of, you know, getting on that inside that magazine? Yeah, it's, uh, it was a really cool thing. You know, um, I started off uh, the year 2016 getting um, put on the list, which was cool. Um, you know, it's, it's a weird thing. Like for me, 
Forbes reached out to me and they're like, hey, we were considering putting you on last year's list. Um, you were the one person we didn't put on the list. We want to put you on the list this year. You were 31. Yeah, I'm, I'm the 31st one, apparently, of 2015. Yeah, yeah. 31 under 31. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 2015. Um, and so I was like, well, that's cool. A, didn't really know I was, you know, in the running like that right, the year right, before. Right. And then, uh, you know, oh, okay, so now you are going to put me on. That's awesome, right? Um, so, like, yeah, I fill out all this stuff. So I filled out all of the, the stuff, you know, the questionnaire, like, how many rounds of capital have you raised? What are your sales? This and that. You know, just business questions in right. general. And then a little um, bit about who you are and your story and, and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Um, so for me, it all happened very, like, randomly. It was just popped up and boom, we were off the races and doing that thing. Um you know, people reach out to me all the time now. Like, hey, man, can you like, put in a word and stuff? Like, well, a, I don't think my word really counts <laughs> into their evaluation criteria because I'm not a judge of the 30 under 30, um, anything. Um, but secondly, I think it means more when something just kind of happens for the right reasons. And organically. Exactly. And, you know, they uh, Randall Lane at, at Forbes, um, who runs, he's, he's the editor, and he runs um, the 30 under 30 program as well. They've done an incredible job in sort of building this um, community, right, of, of, of of list members and uh, it didn't used to be like that. The first year that they did that was this last year, um, you know, 2016. They did bigger in 2017. Um, they have a, a deal in in um, Tel Aviv in, in, every year in, in uh, Israel where they have a bunch of people come and um, you know hang out with other list members and, and whatnot. And then they have one in Boston every year and then a bunch of other smaller events. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've met some some friends. You know, I'll give the Schusterman Foundation a, a shout out here too because um, so the Schusterman Foundation is um, an organization that they run this reality program where they take people to. Israel and, and show them um, lots of cool things and do a lot of cool team building and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was fortunate enough to be on the 30 under 30 list, and then um, the Schusterman Foundation picked a subsect of those people to take to Israel and give this really awesome curated experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and through that, made some lifelong friends, right? Like people that uh, I'll be friends with forever. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that all essentially started with, with being on the list, right? And then the Schusterman Foundation um, sort of furthering the intimacy um, and, and growth within that small uh, group between people. And so, you know, for me, the benefit's unquantifiable just because I've made so many awesome lifelong friends out of a deal. Um, they're also doing really cool things, smart people, compassionate people, just, you know, some of the, the salt of the earth type of folks that you, that you hope to meet. Um so yeah, you know that's 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 kind of how it worked out for me. I'm sure I'm sure like most entrepreneurs, you know, you're a workaholic, and I'm sure you're you're you know working crazy hours. But what what else kind of you know does Nick like to do outside of work? I see you have a motorcycle, you know, parked right here next to us inside your office, <laughs> um, and I know you know um, you dabble with you know music a little bit. So yeah, tell us more about that. Yeah, so I've been a musician my whole life, right? I was you know, grew up in the choir and doing show choir and chorus and men's glee and acapella. Were you bass and all or stuff. tenor? Um, well, they wanted me always to be baritone oh, um, right or bass, but yeah. uh, I often like to sing the tenor line because I thought they were more fun. Okay. There was a lot more, you know, uh, fluidity. Mm-hmm. They, they sang a lot more melodies um, mm-hmm. than baritones or basses did. Right. So, uh, you know, occasionally I'd be in there and then I'd be singing the tenor part and then, you know, she'd get all mad at me like, <laughs> we need more people. Yeah, those choir teachers are intense. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Mrs. Simpson. Shout out well, to Mrs. Simpson, yeah. wherever she's at these days. <laughs> um, you know, she was awesome. But, you know, so I do that. I, I still enjoy music. For me, it's, it's kind of a meditation and a reset. Um, you know, when I haven't played music uh, for a while, I, I write a lot of songs, more indie folk songs, acoustic songs now. Um, you know, I was in a death metal band, I was in acapella, I've been in a lot of different sorts of, uh, you know, an EDM group for a while. It, I love 
producing music is very fun for me. Um, it's one, it's, it's more of a meditation for me than anything. I think, um, I mean, I like to, I like to go bow hunting. Um, I did that a couple weekends ago with my brother for some deer. Um, and other things. Do you eat it after at least? That's the whole point. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, oftentimes people look at, uh, people that do something as difficult as bow hunting, which for me, it's, it's so the way that I do it, you know, you hike 12 miles onto a mountain somewhere and you spend four days trying to essentially survive that and then hike every day to try and get an animal. And most of the time you're just not successful. Most of the time it's a backpacking trip with Right. in your hand yeah, yeah. most of the time um, and you know a lot of people want to criticize that yet they're going to go to in and out and eat themselves a goddamn double double so uh, hypocrisy right um, enjoy that um, hamburger um, so <laughs> anyway I, I like to do that I like going uh, backpacking is another sort of meditation thing for me like you said I am a workaholic I do a, a ton and ton a ton of work all the time so I think it's important to kind of have a reset and I think when you go out into something like the forest, into the wild, and you realize that none of your worries, there's no cap table out there, there's no P&L, there's not shit out there but just you and some bears and some trees, and like the, and, and they don't care about you or your problems or anything at all whatsoever. Right. Um, you know, so I like to do that. Um, I roll jiu-jitsu at the Gracie Academy um, with Hedron and Henner and Evandro and those guys. Um, you know, I think you know, we were talking about this at the very beginning of the podcast, but introducing struggle purposefully um, to serve as sort of that vaccination for future struggle you can't control is something that I just couldn't emphasize enough. And that's whether it's bow hunting or backpacking or rolling jiu-jitsu um, or kickboxing. Um, you know, those are things that are hard. Like the worst thing that you can have happen to you, one of the worst things you could ever have is have another grown man on top of you and you can't get up no matter what. And they're not even hitting you. Yeah. You can't move. Yeah. It's, you know, you get Evandro Nunez, Hedron Gracie, Henry Gracie on top of you. You're just, you're helpless, right? You're helpless. And I rolled jiu-jitsu and I'm still... You'd rather have a bear on top of you at that point. Yeah, might as well. You know, I mean, Hedron and those guys are a little nicer <laughs> than bears, luckily. But like, who knows, you know? Um... Yeah, so I, I like to try and do shit that's that's difficult or test myself mentally, mental toughness, uh, physical toughness, that kind of thing. Um, it's something I think uh, probably a little too much about, right? Like, um, but but most of my activities sort of revolve around that. I would say, yeah, love it. Well, man, well, Nick, it's been a great uh, conversation. Uh, you know, I love your energy and uh, you know a lot of interesting insight here into into you know running a early to mid stage business. Mm -hmm. Um, whether it's, you know, branding, fundraising, or just staying sane. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, it, you know, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Um, you know, if you're trying to find Barnana anywhere, you can find us in a number of uh, retailers. We're in about 15,000 retailers now. So Starbucks, Whole Foods, uh, most of your natural and organic retailers, um, Barnana.com, of course, Amazon, etc. Um, if you ever want to hit me up for whatever reason, you had a question or you want to send me uh, hate mail or uh, anything like that, you can uh, hit me up at IngersollNIK.com or you know hit me up on Instagram um, at IngersollNIK. Um, or you could just send these guys all the hate mail too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll send it our way and we'll screen. forward it in. Yeah, yeah much love. Awesome. Seriously, I, I super appreciate you guys. Thank, Thank you. you.